Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of the Variety and iHeart podcast, The Big Ticket. I'm your host, Mark Malkin. Today's first guest is Kerry Washington. Find out what she has to say about being nominated for four Emmys this year, what it was like shooting the upcoming musical movie The Prom with Meryl Streep, and why, despite all her political activism, she won't be running for office. Then later, Dylan McDermott, the actor, earned an Emmy nom for his work in Ryan Murphy's Hollywood. The last time he got a nod was 21 years ago for his breakout role on The Practice. I'll be right back with Kerry Washington after this short break. Welcome back to The Big Ticket. Kerry Washington is going into Emmy night as a four-time nominee. She's up for honors for her acting and producing for Little Fires Everywhere, American Sun, and Live in Front of a Studio Audience. And just last month, we saw the release of The Fight, a new documentary she produced that tracks five ACLU lawyers as they mount legal battles against the Trump administration's attempts to roll back female reproductive, voting, LGBTQ, and immigrant rights. I caught up with Washington on a Zoom meeting from her home in Los Angeles. God, we have so much to talk about. Yeah. Congrat- congratulations. Four <laughs> nominations. Which one should we talk about first? Okay, let's do Little Fires Everywhere. When will we see season two? (laughs) (laughs) We have no plans for season two. We really don't. I mean, every once in a while we think, like, can we come up with an idea for season two? Because we just love working together. This group, you know, Liz Tigelar and Hello Sunshine and Simpson Street, like, we just... I mean, I, if I could work every day with Reese Witherspoon for the rest of my life, I would. She is just a dream and my sister, really. But but we don't have we don't have plans for a season two. We have other projects in development. Our companies are teaming up for some other projects. Is is it bittersweet? I guess bittersweet. Like when you walk away from a project like that, because it's not like I don't I don't know how to explain it, but I have to say it, but. It's just this little contained, it's not a full, full, you know, television series. It's not a movie. You walk away from it. How, I mean, I guess it's every project. How sad is it after you become this little family? Yeah. The limited series was challenging because it's enough time for you to really know how much you love these people. (laughs) You know, it's enough time to really they fall in love and then you got to pull the plug. Um, but I just, um, I don't know. I, I feel so lucky that we were able to do it. You know, the novel is so special and um, Reese is such a phenom and, um, and the whole cast and crew that we were able to assemble together. I'm happy we had it, you know? So were you surprised Reese didn't get the acting nom? I, mean, I was. Everybody was, yeah. I was, I was, I was, uh, should I admit this? I was a little angry. <laughs> I was like, yeah. what? Like, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's wonderful to have the, um, the nomination for the show because that means mm-hmm. that nomination belongs to everyone. But, I, you know, to be honest with you, since early in my career, having watched, you know, the campaign for Jamie, for Ray, and and to watch Forrest with Last King of Scotland, and to be kind of in this awards game for a, a really long time, because I've been blessed to be a part of material that, has, that have been awards contenders, 
I also get that it's, you know, it, I have a really tricky relationship with award shows, I'll say, you know, and I try to, um, to receive the, the beauty of it, but without letting it define who I am or how I feel. How much do you love being a producer? I love it. I love it so much. I love Why it. Why is so that? I like being a part of the team that creates an opportunity for other people to work, right? Like as a producer, your job is to create a container where a bunch of artists and artisans, they come to work every day and they get to pursue excellence toward this common vision. And that's because of the producing. Like you create that landscape for people to soar. Um, so I really like that. And I, I think I like the problem solving. That's the seven seasons of Olivia Pope. Like I, I like the problem solving. I like, um, and I like being a part of a team. And I, I really enjoy kind of that, that group team family feel. You like being the boss? Um, <laughs> No, I don't know that I like being a boss, but um, I don't dislike being a boss, but I think I like being a coach. You know, I like figuring out ways to inspire people and to motivate people and to um, push people into even being able to surprise themselves by their level of excellence. Yeah, I mean, I love mentoring. Like when interns are yeah. um, at Variety or wherever I've worked, I just love watching young people get it. Yeah, they get that moment and they come to you and you're like, I didn't have to correct something that I've had to correct all that time. And they get it well, and you're just like, <gasps> And we had that with all these young actors on the show. I mean, I, it is one of the things, I think the nomination that means the most to me is, I think so, I think this is true. I, I think it's true, is Lynn Shelton's nomination. You know, like she, what she did with those kids she really created a world where they could present those performances that they give. Every single one of them is so honest and pure and they're just, they're, they're stellar. They give these, these phenomenal performances, every single one of them. And Lynn created a space for them to do that and the inspiration for them to do that. She rehearsed with them and she met with them and worked with them and, um, she was just, she, she was, she's so, so special. So, um, so I, I think a lot about that with, with the, with our young actors in particular, how, how much she poured her heart into their performances. American Sun. Was it in Toronto? That yeah. We first talked about oh, yeah. it? Yes. And the story that I remember, and I actually tell people, I, I really, I, Relay the story is about your dad talking what? about. It's always he's stealing all my thunder. Everywhere I go, it's just all about my dad, which I love. <laughs> well, you gave you've told a great story, a very moving story about going on vacation. And you said, Dad, where are you going? And he said, I have to get my ID if I'm driving. And that story has stayed with me for so long. I mean, obviously until now. Um, what, obviously nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Well, I think, I think things are changing. I think it's very true that nothing has changed, but I think we are in a pivotal moment 
we are in one of those crossroads moments in, in the life of this democracy. And you really see it. Like you see people demanding change in their vote, um, in their census, in the protesting and the marching, in the volunteering. Like you just, it, even in the conversations, you see that we are in a, at a new level of awakening around the reality of institutional racism in this country and our history of oppression. Um, and I think we just have to keep pushing. We just have to keep moving forward in that dialogue and holding our elected officials accountable and empowering elected officials that reflect our values and in our smaller communities, at our dinner tables, at our you know, on our family Zooms, like we have to hold each other accountable and continue to to create change. Like we are in a moment of change. Do you, and I, I've, I've talked about this, I think I've even talked about it with you, when my husband was undocumented and he, would, and he wasn't home and the phone would ring, my heart would stop every single time because I didn't know if he was in trouble. Does that happen with you with your husband? It's hard to remember, um, like, pre-quarantine when we weren't always in the same yeah. place. <laughs> good point. <laughs> really good point. Like, when's the last time we weren't both at home both in the car? Um, but, yeah, you know, I... I don't worry when the phone rings necessarily, but, um, but I do, I mean, I, I, it's impossible to not worry about, um, the black men in my life out in the world, my cousins, my dad, my husband, you know, um, that is the reality of loving a black person in America is you you open yourself up to the vulnerability of the danger that black people face every day. I mean, I think a lot about it because I, I remember like begging Shonda when I was pregnant, couldn't Olivia Pope be pregnant? Because I I was like, how are we gonna hide this person inside yes. me? Like Love baskets. I, right? Baskets. I, I don't even know how to do the Olivia Pope walk with a human being inside me. Like how, I don't and she was adamant that Olivia Pope was not going to have children. And it wasn't until I started rehearsing for American Son that I got it because Olivia Pope had no vulnerabilities. Outside of fits, she was a superhero. And just like, just built into black motherhood is fear and vulnerability. And that was a layer to her identity that Shonda knew was not right for that character. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah. I think that's in a ways why playing Kendra was kind of like the un-Olivia Pope. You know, it was really like letting the pendulum swing all the way to the other side in my acting toolbox to think of a woman as different from Olivia Pope as I could, as I could have imagined. Um, of course, I didn't imagine her. Christopher Demos Brown did, our brilliant writer. But to think of a woman who's not the most powerful woman in the room, but a woman who's begging officers of power to give her some information, something tangible. Um, a woman who is not, 
you know, in love with this dashing white man who loves her enough to go to war with her, but actually a white man who's broken her heart by sleeping with a white woman. Um, like, you know, a mother. She's just, she's in so many ways, everything that Olivia Pope is not. She owns no product. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that was was really good for me as an actor to stretch in that way and to you know after sort of seven seasons of giving you the fantasy of what a powerful black woman could be um, in the arms of a powerful white man who fully understands her value in the world to then sort of rip the rug out and say like now I want to look at some of the underbelly of what it could be to be a black woman without that kind of power in a very problematic and troubled relationship with a white man who doesn't see her power and doesn't understand what she's up against. That's powerful. So let's go, let's go to a little fun subject. A lot yeah. of in front of a studio audience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you ever, ever think you'd be on the Jeffersons? <laughs> um, I didn't, but what a Joy, you know, I mean, what an absolute joy to be a part of that team and to bring those shows back. You know, Norman Lear is such a hero of mine. And I, you know, the Jeffersons lives in apartment 12D. I grew up in apartment 12D in the Bronx, <laughs> um, which I remember as a kid. And um, so it was, it's so tremendous to work with him. And of course, I adore Jimmy Kimmel. Um, so and I love working with him. Uh, and so it, it was really, what happened was I, um, on the first special, which they've already won an Emmy for, I just wound up, because I love producing, I wound up really working with them in the trenches, you know, trying to be of service to Norm and Jimmy and Brent Miller as much as I could. And um, it was important to me that the show succeed, that these classic shows be celebrated in the right way. And so I really wanted to sort of lend my voice as a woman um, to, to, add, to be additive as a woman and as a Black person um, to the team of producers and so, um, and Jimmy Burroughs. And so they came back for the second special and invited me to produce officially. <laughs> and, um, I was like, I get the hint. <laughs> um, um, so it was, it was, it was very sweet and really kind. And, and I love working with those guys. So it's, it's really fun to, to have been officially a producer for the second one. So what sitcom would you love to do live in front of a studio audience? What, oh, what, what's another one? I can't tell you because we, it's, you know, there's stuff in the works, but we are, don't worry. We are ramping up for the next special. We're really excited. Have you seen, it's, do you know casting? Like, where are you at? What, what, no, no. I mean, some casting we have because the first two have been so successful that now we've had some actors come to us to say, like, I want to play this person and this. Um, and, you know, Norman's catalog is so extensive. So we have a lot of possibilities and some really exciting prospects. When do you feel like you'll ever be, when will you feel safe going back to filming again? You know, I was going to be filming last weekend. Um, I was scheduled to film and we did multiple phone calls about it um, with my physician, you know, because I, I had childhood asthma and my parents are both 80 and live in our guest house. So um, I have to be really, really careful. 
But um, it just wound up that with rewrites, the scenes that I was going to complete for the prom, um, we didn't need to do. So they did do some filming and I was really, I felt very, I felt really good about the protocols. Mm. Um, but again, it wasn't an extended shoot. You know, it was going to be like literally a half a day, which why we were like, do we really need that moment? Um, but but I, I think we're, we're going to get there. You know, I'm really inspired by what Tyler Perry is doing. Um, and yeah. he, of course, has the infrastructure to do that. But um, it's really smart the way he's quarantining folks and keeping sort of a production bubble. And um, so I'm, I'm really watching what Tyler's doing today. I, I actually texted him this morning and was like, what are we filming? What are we, what are we doing, Tyler? We're here to get together and figure out what we're filming at your studio. It feels so safe. Move your parents down there. Yes. <laughs> Just down to Tyler Perry Studios. I, um, I loves my parents. Tyler would probably fly my parents to the studio before he flew me. <laughs> he, he, he'll take my parents over me any day, as would most people. So how much singing and dancing did you do in the prom? A little bit. A little bit. Yeah. I did a ton of musical theater in high school and college and um, it's been a long time since I've been able to to flex those muscles, and I've never sung on screen before, so it was really fun. And I loved working with my on-screen daughter, Ariana DeBose. Um, she is, of course, Anita in Spielberg's West Side yeah. Story, and um, she's just so brilliant. And she was the bullet in Hamilton, um, so I I really love her, and I'm really excited for everybody to see her in the film the whole cat i mean everybody's amazing meryl is phenomenal i mean yeah, not that her there's I, like she's always phenomenal but in the i'm telling you in the prom it's like <laughs> just being there during filming i was like i just I, she's she's incredible yeah i heard she was doing like these major high kicks and fan yeah. kicks okay. and and spins and high notes and belting. Like she, Meryl Streep has a belt, people. Like a belt, a for real Broadway belt. It's not all she's like for real. My, my first college, my first boyfriend, my first college boyfriend is a producer of the, of the Broadway show. Oh, oh great. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I'm, I'm very happy to hear that the movie's coming along so nicely. Yeah. So now we have to talk about the fight. Every case that you've, that they followed in the doc is just so powerful. How did you get involved? Obviously, you're a friend of the ACLU. Um, you've been honored by them. Yeah. Yes. So how did you get involved in the in producing this amazing documentary? You know, I think we were seven days into the Trump administration and he enacted this Muslim ban. And it was... I remember it being one of the first moments where I was like, oh, here we go. Like, this is, this is what it's going to look like. This is what it's going to feel like, the attack on civil rights and civil liberties. And like a lot of people, I was just riveted to the news, like watching all of the protesters on the ground at, at, at the airports in New York and outside the federal courthouse in Brooklyn. And when the, the lawyers from the ACLU exited the courthouse, in their triumphant victory, I just thought, yes, like these are our heroes. These lawyers are going to be in the trenches fighting the fight for the most important legal battles of our lifetime for the next four years. 
And who is following them with cameras? Like who's going to capture it? Because this is, this is the real life justice league. Um, so who's going to be with them? And luckily for me, the filmmakers who made Wiener had the same idea on the same night and we found out and we just decided to join forces and try to get the ACLU to let us follow them around. So at first they said no. <laughs> and, um, and we took that as an invitation. Um, and we just, we just kept at it, you know, sort of based on the filmmaker's reputation and their amazing way of building trust while also being invisible. And then my relationship with the ACLU, eventually we were able to, to get this unprecedented access behind the scenes into what real heroic leadership looks like. It's empowering to watch, but it's also depressing. Mm. It's mm -hmm. really sort of this seesaw because you see the fights that happen. Yeah. And the ACLU won, but where are we today? All of those fights are still happening. So when you watch it, when you start coming together, is it empowering? Is it scary? I mean, it's, it, it's <laughs> I scary. Think, I think it's hopeful. I mean, I think what a lot of, what a lot of people have said is that um, it's, it is at times hard to watch, but it's so encouraging to know that like when you wake up in the morning and you think like, I don't know what to be panicked about today. Should I be more stressed out about the attack on a women's reproductive rights or the attack on the LGBTQ community or the attack on immigrants communities? I mean, you can belong to many of those communities and think, you know, like, or the attack on black bodies in police violence. Like there are so many battles to be fighting right now, but I get comfort and so many people have said they get comfort by waking up and knowing that the ACLU is in that fight that no matter what it is, no matter what we're facing, you know that there is a place, like you can read it online or in the newspaper and think, oh my God, but you know that the very next paragraph will mention Bridget or Dale or you know one of these incredible heroes, Chase, who is gonna meet that challenge courageously and with perseverance and resilience. And then the end of the film, you know, there's that beautiful quote from Dale where he talks about that they're gonna to continue to fight, but they can't do it alone, that they need us. You know, they need us in the streets, they need us at the voting booths, they need us to show up to fight this fight with them. And that part of the film I think is so inspiring, you know, to get to that at the end, to realize that we may not have gone to law school, you and I, but we have our own gifts and assets that we can bring to the fight. Even if it's baking cupcakes and selling them and sending that money to the ACLU. You know, you can be phone calls to your legislators, you can be writing letters, you can be posting, you can be marching, you can be voting, you can fill out your census. Like there's so much that we can do and you look at what they're accomplishing. Yes, they're superheroes, but they're also just regular everyday people. You know, they're, they're dads who are hanging their kids upside down because they're trying to get their Zoom <laughs> meeting done and they're, wives having you know train wine on the way home to their husbands mm -hmm. and their their mothers and fathers and wives and husbands they're just normal people who have found ways to be heroic in their lives and we can do that too like they remind us that we can do that too if we can't find our cell phone chargers and we can't wrap our head around technology we can still be changing the world <laughs> but how do you stay hopeful 
when on a day like this, John Lewis is memorialized and a president is tweeting about possibly trying to delay the election. How yeah. do you stay hopeful? We stay hopeful by staying in the fight. I mean, that's what the film mm -hmm. is about. You know, at the same time that, that the president is tweeting that tweet, you know, I was supposed to do some press earlier this morning with Dale Ho for the film. And he had to say like, I'm sorry, you got to do the interview by yourself because I have work to do now, right? Like I have work to do. And so I get to be the kind of superhero that I can be by getting the word out about this film. And he gets to be the kind of superhero that he gets to be. And my superhero is tiny, tiny in comparison to his, <laughs> you know, he's a real hero. I'm like a rah-rah, sis-boom-ba hero. Um, <laughs> But, but it's it, like, that's what it's gonna take. It's gonna take each of us bringing our individual talents and whatever we have to offer, whether we can write a check or drive our neighbors to the polls, whatever it is we can do. What do you think is gonna happen in November? Um, what, I, what I pray happens in November is that um, we're able to have a fair election um, I pray that people show up to vote. Um, I believe that if people have equal access to voting, fair access to voting, and that if we can remind people that they are the heroes of their own community, then I believe in, um, in us electing not just a president, but representatives and sheriffs and DAs that stand for the values of inclusivity and belonging and equity and justice. Um, I think, you know, so often when a crisis happens in this country, whether it's COVID or, um, or the election in 2016, people get online and suddenly Olivia Pope is trending. Olivia Pope, fix this. Olivia Pope, you have to save the day. And I want to say to people, Olivia Pope is not real. Like you, actually, you, whoever you are, listening to this podcast, reading this article, mm -hmm. like you have more power than Olivia Pope because Olivia Pope cannot vote. Olivia Pope cannot fill out her census. Olivia Pope cannot volunteer or write a check to the ACLU. Real people can do that. So if we can remind people that they, not Olivia Pope, are the solution to the problems in their community. They are the answer to the pressing issues that they care most about. Then I have real hope for this country. I, be I believe in the vision of what this we the people can be. You know, we the people where all of us are people and are considered part of that vision and dream. I believe in that, but I want other people to believe in it too. And not because I'm Kerry Washington and I want you to believe in it, I want you to believe in it because of your power. There are so many voters in this country who honestly have more power than I do as Kerry Washington. Like, I live in a state that's not a swing state. It's not a state that's going to matter as much as Wisconsin and Virginia and North Carolina and Michigan. You know, like, these are places, those, your vote, you live in one of those states, your vote matters so much. Arizona, like, you have the, the, opportunity to be a part of history, to make history, to, to like have this country live up to its own dreams. So I'm excited, I'm inspired, I'm hopeful, um, and I'm in the trenches working. <laughs>
And I know I've asked you this before, but I'm going to keep asking you because every time you talk to me, you're so inspiring. When are you going to run for office? <laughs> <laughs> and you laugh every time. I do. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to run for office, but I hope, I do hope that, um, that, that this film, that, that films like this, you know, like films like Good Trouble and like The Fight, um, I hope that this kind of work inspires other people to run. You know, I even I hope a, a show like Little Fires, you know, where that talks so much about race and class and, um, you know, unconscious bias. I hope that people get inspired to step into their power. And um, I have met some young people who say, you know, they were inspired to run for office because of Olivia Pope. Or, um, and I've met young people who I was with on the trail, on the campaign trail for Barack Obama in 08 and in 12, and um, who say like that, that time was so inspiring. So um, I, I'm more than happy to just continue to inspire other people to run for office. I don't think that's my calling. You're amazing. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you so much. Stay well. You too. Send my love to your other half. I will. Take care. Bye. Bye. That was Kerry Washington. Now we're going to take a short break, but when we return, I've got Dylan McDermott. I'm Alec Baldwin. Listen to my podcast, Here's the Thing, on iHeartRadio. It's my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, like the actress Kristen Bell. And the moment I said, you know what, I have a thing, and it's a quirky, weird, fun thing that can be snarky, and I love doing it, I do it pretty well, why not lean into it? And that is when I felt like... I started becoming happier. Music legend Mick Fleetwood. Fleetwood Mac was always about change so that you were accepted for who you were. Former governor of Vermont, Howard Dean. I took the call and this quavering voice on the other end of the phone says, I regret to inform you that the governor has died of a heart attack and you're the governor. <laughs> that was the end of my medical practice. And best-selling author Isabel Wilkerson. People would come up to me of all different backgrounds and would say to me, I had no idea that this happened in our country. If you like listening as much as I like talking with interesting people, go to heresthething.org and subscribe now on the iHeart app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Big Ticket. Dylan McDermott was nominated for his first Emmy Award 21 years ago for his breakout role on The Practice. Well, now he's returning to the Emmys as a nominee again for his role as a gas station owner and pimp on Ryan Murphy's Hollywood. McDermott and I caught up from his home in Los Angeles to talk about the Netflix series Hollywood, writing his memoir during quarantine, and what he remembers most from the time he was nominated for that first Emmy. Okay, how you doing? I love that you're completely on time. Oh, yes. You know who this talked is about it, uh, Jodie Foster. Hmm. What was that? You know who taught me that is Jodie Foster. Oh, yeah. What'd she tell you? What'd she teach you? I guess that people have done studies on time and people who are late are rarely successful. Okay. I like it. Are, are, genuine, uh, are usually successful, I have to say. But then people who are early are very successful. They're just, they've got it made. So Jodie Foster's like 15, 20 minutes early to every meeting. So I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to take this. If she, if you know she, what? That's, a, I remember it was Bradley Cooper came to a red carpet and it was super early. And I said to him, I said, what are you doing? You're the star. I forget what movie it was. I'm like, you're the star of the movie. What are you doing here so early? 
Yeah. And he said that someone taught that someone once said to him, like, never be early for your own movie. If you have to drive around the block. Yeah. And he said, what's my excuse to be late? It's my movie. Yeah. No, I, I have to be there on time. It's something, there's something great about being early. You get to prepare yourself. But anyway, I mean, nobody's more successful than Jody, so. She must be doing something right. <laughs> exactly. How are you, sir? Okay, how are you holding up? Holding up, you know, living the That's dream long, inside the apartment. It's a long know? time now. Where do you live? Um, Miracle Mile, like right behind Lockwood. Oh, okay. Yeah. You're in L.A. too, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I live in New York, L.A., but I've been here for a while. But, yeah, it's a long haul, man. It's just been bizarre. It's like some days I wake up, I'm like, okay, this is the new normal. And then I'm like, this cannot be the new normal. You know, I don't know what day it is half the time. People say, no, it's <laughs> Thursday. No, no, it's Friday. It's, what? It's Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. It's very true. People say, oh, what's the weather like outside? I'm like, I haven't been out in a few days. I had no reason to go outside. So how are you staying sane during quarantine? What do you do? Um, you know, I've been writing a lot. I wrote my memoir, uh, Dead. which was like crazy. Um, that was really, really, I mean, it changed me actually. Um, so I'm really happy I did it. I don't know what I'll do with it, but I'm really happy I, I wrote it cause I needed to write it. Mm. And then, um, that just, just like doing research and you know how it is with life. You're, you're always searching for the truth somewhere, right? Yeah. So I had to do a little bit of that, which was phenomenal. And um, I got to spend time with my kids, which has been really spectacular because um, a lot of times in life, we have a bunch of excuses and places to go. And yeah. how much time do you really spend with people? How intimate are you really? Mm. How much connection do you get? They say they also I, I'm, I'm crazy about these studies of, of people and relationships and, you know, quality time. And they say that people spend like two, three minutes a day really, really talking to each other. And the two rest of three minutes, that's it. That's it. And the rest of the time is kind of distraction. Be interesting if that if that study changes during pandemic. Well, that's what well, you, as, as we're seeing, there's a quite a lot of breakups and divorce going on. <laughs> I think it's really hard for people to be in proximity for a long period of time. And, uh, but anyway, with my kids, I got to do something really interesting with them, which was to, you know, find out who they are and to mm -hmm. really listen and to be present of uh, things that have kind of escaped me in the past. And, I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to use this opportunity to, to really talk to them wow. about who they are. And I actually wrote an article for Vanity Fair about it. And um, I've been, you know, kind of finding out what, what's going on with them. Because, again, if you think back on your own life and your parents, and they really didn't know you when, you know, when you were kids. And <laughs> yeah. they didn't want to know. I don't know. But I, I, felt like <laughs> I, I really wanted to have that time with them because we may never have this again. Um, Hopefully we don't. We hope. Yeah. So what did you learn about yourself writing a memoir? That's pretty intense well, to do during quarantine, no less. But what a great time to do it. Um, like, yeah, yeah. Man. I mean, I learned so 
much shit about everybody and everything. Things that, um, again, had sort of, I've, you know, swept under the carpet or really didn't know or talk to people. You know, it's interesting. You go back and interview people and really ask them questions. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, people really do want to talk. Um, so, you know, I just started from, uh, you know, probably four years old to 23. That's kind of where the book wow. Um And it, it may, I think everybody should do it, by the way. I think everybody should write the story of their life um, and put it down on paper because it just helps you connect. Uh, and to just to write, just, yeah. just, just writing in itself. And I have such respect for writers. And um, so I, I really, I was the hardest thing I ever did, but also the most exhilarating thing. So let's talk about Hollywood. Sure. Could you have imagined when you were starting out in the business that there would be a TV show like this that would ever be greenlit? Um, you know, it, you know, I, my orientation is probably different than most. I grew up um, in the '60s. I grew up in Waterbury, Connecticut, with my my grandmother, mm-hmm. and also in Greenwich Village with my dad. So, you know, I think that my orientation is just different. So for me, uh, yeah, I actually did see this coming. I did see it happening. Um, I, I, I think that uh, we're kind of behind the times, really, in a mm-hmm. way. So I'm really, I mean, I'm thrilled to be a part of this, this, this whole experience because it really gives you kind of a, it sets the table for the future, hopefully. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That there will be a quality one day. Um, that's what we're all hoping for. You know, that's what I'm hoping. And so, yeah, um, I'm really happy that it, it was made and and people, a lot of people saw it and really just were blown away by it. And there's more to come. Ernie. Yeah. What when you read when you read the part, what did you think? What, what are his motivations? What do you like about him? Well, you know, when you get that call from Ryan, it's usually, you know, when that happens, it's always the happiest day of your life because mm-hmm. you know something great is coming. You know, I'm writing you a part. <laughs> That's what you get. And you're like, oh my God, are you <laughs> kidding me? This is a dream come true. You know, the most prolific producer in Hollywood to say, I'm, I'm writing you a part. So anyway, when he said that, I was already, you know, so excited and, and, and waiting. Then you wait. Um, for like whatever it is. And that could be months mm. go by. And then you get another call saying, come to my office. I want you to read it. I was like, yeah, okay, I'll be there in an hour. <laughs> so I went and I read, I read the, 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 the first script of Hollywood and I was like, whoa. I mean, the whole, you know, Scotty Bowers world and the gas station mm-hmm. and this sort of like, you know, pimp, actor, producer, the joie de vivre of this guy. It was just like, oh my God, this is a dream come true. And then I wanted to like, and Ryan had these ideas of how he wanted me to look. And I was, really it was Ryan that said, I want to reinvent you mm-hmm. as an actor. Um, and, I, and I think he was absolutely right. I needed, you know, every actor needs a reinvention because frankly, we get, we get sick of seeing the same person over and over again in similar roles and, 
you know, it gets stale. And I, I knew, I knew very well that I needed that myself. And Ryan was, was kind enough to do that for me. And once he gave me that green light, I was like, okay, let's do it. And I knew I wanted to change my look. Uh, initially he wanted me to have a crew cut, but I saw, I have a, a poster of the misfits in my house and I live mm -hmm. with Clark Gable every day. So I just had Clark somewhere in there. Like, you know, if, if Scotty Bowers and Clark Gable had a love child, it would be <laughs> Ernie West. And all that of a sudden, a lot of sense. yes. And there he was, he showed up, the mustache came and the hair and the way he dressed and I had underwear made. And I just was like, I, I was consumed. I was absolutely consumed because I certainly, I, I certainly didn't want to disappoint Ryan, but I also, you know, and this happens only a few times in your career where a character just takes you, mm. just completely takes you and you get out of the way. And I why, got, why, why did Ernie take you? You know, I, I, I mean, I'm a, a, a series of things, you know, I grew up in, in bars when I was a kid in the village, as I said, with my dad and, these guys would come into the bar, you know, when I was a boy and they'd be bigger than life and they'd be smoking and they'd be drinking and they'd have the lighter and they'd be decked out in these clothes. And I was just like enamored of them. It's like, whoa, how do I, how do I ever get to be like that? You know, and I would wait on actors. I would wait on uh, John Belushi and Michelle Pfeiffer and Matthew Broderick. And Wait, what? Yeah. You were waiting I, on I, I John a, Belushi? Yes, uh, there's actually wrote an article about it in the New York Times. That's when I was a young boy, I would bust his tables because I was like, you know, this is the 70s. Right. And I'm maybe 15. And he was like Whoa. the biggest star in the world. And I would uh, bust his tables and just like, just want to be near him. Like everybody. Right. You know what I mean? And he'd pour a lot of ketchup on his eggs. And, and I was just like, this, this, this is the closest I, I, I've ever been to a star at that and time. And that's a star. That's, that's a pretty big star. Big star. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and then years later, I was hosting Saturday Night Live. Many, many years later, my dad was in the audience. And, um, and I was thinking to myself, you know, I used to bust his tables. And now here I am hosting Saturday Night Live. And I thought of him. And he had passed by that point, but I was just like, it was just the, the circle of that whole world, the, the weirdness of how it all came about. But, but I, was, I will say, to get back to your question, I think it was just studying people and watching people and really just, you know, thinking to myself, how do you do that? How do you get there? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think I was just a great observer and a, a great watcher and just like, compiled all this information for one day, which I still do. You know, I have characters that, that, that live in my head that are hopefully one day I get to do. So that, I think that really saved me in many ways. What does it feel like to know that there are young people out there who are studying you? Wow. You know, I said this in, the, in that article I wrote for Vanity Fair, which was about, you know, because I was a latchkey kid and my mom was gone and uh, my dad were, they were both gone when I was kids. My grandmother raised me. So a lot of my childhood was watching television, watching mm -hmm. the, the courtship of Eddie's father and my three sons and I dream of Jeannie. Uh, and I would watch these shows and I would, I would literally like take notes on how to be a human being. 
how to behave, um, how to how to interact with people. And so it, it's interesting that you would say that because, you know, I would study it and 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 that had such influence on me watching people. And I said that in the article, I wrote that in the article, what is there's, is there a boy out there right now watching me to, to, to no to, to, to looks up to me or to, you know, is looking at me for, for how to behave, you know what I mean? All these things that, that, that entertainment is, is, is that's why it's so powerful yeah. because people do do that. They do look to you. So what is it? 21 years ago, you were nominated for an Emmy. Yes. And now you're nominated again. So how have you changed in 21 years? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to say it's, it's, it's a lot sweeter this time because, you know, when you're young, you think that that's going to keep happening. You think, <laughs> oh, this is, I'll just ride into the sunset and all of a sudden reality hits and you realize, oh, this is really hard. It's hard to get a nomination. It's hard to gather attention. It's... um. You know, it doesn't happen all the time. It took me 21 years to get my second nomination. So I'm much more grateful. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm touched. Um, and uh, I think it's just wonderful. And especially, I'm, I'm really happy that it's, it's for Ryan because we've worked mm -hmm. for over 10 years now and done, you know, several different projects together. So I'm really happy it's, it's for him. So what does it feel like, though, to go against one of your co-stars? Because oh. it is a competition. Jim Parsons. And he's, a, he's phenomenal in the show, and he has multiple Emmys. Um, <laughs> uh, and all the actors are great, you know. So I, yeah. I, look, I look at this as that I, I was surprised because um, I, I don't think I was on anybody's list in terms of getting a nomination. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm, just, I'm just happy to be, to be invited to the party. <laughs> so what was the group text going around on Emmy nomination morning? Oh, yeah, you know, um, well, well uh, funny, I posted today on my Instagram that Darren texted me saying that there was a big mistake. That it was actually, <laughs> he's the one who got the nomination because they mixed up the names. And I was like, no, you got to be kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a great group of people. And, you know, everybody was just so happy. And we got, I think we got 12 nominations, which is yeah. And you had that dancing video I saw on Instagram. Yes. With the boxing gloves, the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> so is this what you do in quarantine? You're like, okay, let me do a dancing video for an Emmy nom. I mean, there's so many hours in the day. You have to do <laughs> I fixed everything in my house. There's nothing left to fix. Every screw is going in the same direction now. I mean, there's nothing. <laughs> what have you been binge watching? What are you watching while you're in quarantine? You know, um, I always look, it's hard to, um, my daughter uh, is staying with me now uh, and she's 14 and I'm 58 and we have to find the sweet spot. You know, what can we watch together? Cause that's, that's really more difficult than you would imagine. Right. Um, and we found one show called the Umbrella Academy, mm -hmm. which is perfect for both of us. <laughs> like I enjoy it. She enjoys it. And we watch it together and, We've been having fun because I really like to watch stuff with her. Just not because I don't want her in her room watching something and me watching. Right. Something. So I really try to find stuff that, that we can kind of have a shared experience. Do you have to do the homeschooling with her now? Are you a teacher doing virtual learning? Uh, not yet. Her school hasn't started yet, but it will in a couple of weeks. Um, so I think she's, 
she, I'm sure she's excited to, to get the hell out of here. How, how do kids even call? I don't know. Hmm? How much oh, is that? <laughs> it's like that. I don't want to watch Umbrella Academy again. <laughs> I mean, I just, I can't understand. I wouldn't be able to do virtual learning if I was a kid. And me either. I just, I just I, it's crazy. No, because it's like this. I mean, you, it's like you and I right now, there's, there's an experience, right. but you know what I mean? It's not a hundred percent. Tell me about the first audition you ever went on. Oh, wow. First audition. I'm trying to remember. You know, I think I was, um, I was, uh, I was in acting school and it was for Biloxi Blues and uh, Meg Simon was the casting director. And I guess they were going to get a new cast and she called me up and said, I, 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 Eve Ensler is my stepmom. So she had a connection to Meg Simon. And so, I mean, I'm young at this point, I'm really young. And so, and it was a big deal in Broadway. Uh, it's Neil Simon, Gene Sachs, mm -hmm. Matt Roderick, who I waited on. And, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, again, full circle. And they call me back like seven times. And I mean, guys were like puking in, in the waiting room. The, 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 everyone was so nervous. Um, and I got the part. Wow. I got the part. I couldn't believe it. I had three auditions and I was on Broadway. I mean, I, I had three rehearsals and I was on Broadway. I barely knew the lines. I mean, you're talking about three rehearsals. Three rehearsals? How, why? Because they were replacing the, the, the other actors and I had literally the stage manager, you know, gave me the blocking. I learned the line and all of a sudden I'm there on Broadway for the first time in my life. And it's just like, I mean, mind blowing. I can't even tell you mind blowing. And I did that play for over a year and I played two parts and it was a great learning experience to do that, you know, eight shows a week for over a year. How old are you? I'm like, you know, 23. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. It was, it was, it was such a great, great, great training. Well, congratulations. See you at the Emmys. See you at the Emmys. I can't wait to read your memoir. Okay. I can't wait to read yours, too. <laughs> awesome, man. Thank you, Dylan. Thanks for having me. Take care. That was Dylan McDermott. Well, that's it for today's Big Ticket. Thanks for listening. Coming up on Thursday, you don't want to miss my chat with Blackish star Tracy Ellis Ross. And also, I've got normal people's Paul Mesco. Until then, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Mark Malkin. And for all your up-to-the-minute Hollywood news, head over to Variety.com. Stay safe, be well, and please wear a mask. I'll see you on Thursday.